Olasun. So the last day of a week before our day for not going to the beach and partying and pina coladas, but just having a day tomorrow of just completely, uh, I have to say, freedom from structure. So you can just set, set up your own schedule and hopefully get into a nice flow. That's what I'll be doing. Um, but for today, we'll be focusing once again for the third time, yep, third time, on the meditative cultivation of compassion. And this time we will attend to the deepest level of suffering, which has a kind of a technical name in Tibetan and Sanskrit. In Tibetan, it's Kyapa Dunga. So a level of dukkha, of suffering, that is ubiquitous, Kyapa, and Duche has to do with conditioned phenomena. So ubiquitous conditioned suffering, but that doesn't tell you much at all. What it's really pointing to is our fundamental vulnerability to suffering. That's the essence of it. The fundamental vulnerability, the existential vulnerability to suffering, addressing that. And then when one asks, well, what is the nature of that that dimension, that whole stratum of suffering? In Tibetan it's called Zakchit Nyewarlenbepombo. Zakchit means contaminated or defiled. And defiled by what? By mental afflictions. Okay, so tinged by, conditioned by, dominated by craving, hostility, delusion. Then kyapa karsa, zakchit nyewara lembe pumbo. The pumbo are the skandhas. These, these, these are the five skandhas, or simply the body and mind for short. All of our mental processes, feelings, um, mental activities of various sorts, consciousness, discernment, recognition, and then the body itself. So the skandhas are what constitutes us as human beings and other types of sentient beings as well. But the real key here is the term nyeuralemba, which means closely held. So it's the defiled, closely held psychophysical aggregates. That's Now, does that really explain anything? It's the experience of the aggregates, the experience now in short. Let's just get this into English, where it kind of gets home to our own experience. It's experience of being embodied and having a mind. But in such a way that our experience of our own bodies and mind, our own body and mind, is conditioned by mental afflictions. And also this, this real giveaway term that the, our body and mind are closely held. Closely held. Well, that clearly implies grasping. Grasping. And so it is because of this, relation, this relationship, this way of embracing, this way of, really the word is, identifying with our own bodies and minds, it is because of a reified identification with our own bodies and mind that we are, I don't know why I keep on saying bodies and mind, but body and mind, that we are vulnerable to suffering. A delusional identification. And the idea here, of course, is extraordinary. I don't think it's found anywhere in any any school of Western philosophy, psychology, or science, and that is that, it, that freedom from even that dimension of suffering is possible. Okay? So it's an extraordinary claim. But now let's try to edge in gradually on it, because uh, it it's hard to imagine how, unless one had a very severe physiological disorder, which does exist, that you simply cannot, cannot feel any pain in the body. So there is a disease such. I've, I've, read, I've seen some documentaries on it. It's very tragic when the people cannot feel their bodies at all. They cannot feel pain. It's, it's a terrible ailment, in fact. Or people that are so emotionally dead or perhaps brain damaged, they can't experience any mental pain. So how apart from severe physical ailment or mental disease could one be awake 
totally present, vibrantly engaged with reality and not be vulnerable to suffering. It looks like maybe inconceivable. I'll try to make it conceivable because if we're going to aspire that all sentient beings may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, we're going right down to the root. right? So, let's take an easy example and it relates to the practice we've been doing for the last three days, settling the mind in this natural state. We know that our thoughts can torture us. Thoughts, I think... I, think, I think, don't think it's a wild speculation to think that thoughts can actually drive some people to suicide. Right? It's not always physical. Often it's mental. And so thoughts can drive us crazy, can drive us into despair, into misery, into anguish, and it's the thoughts themselves, even if you're just sitting in a room by yourself. So clearly, thoughts have an enormous potential to make us suffer, it seems. But if and only if we grasp onto them. If there's an identification, if there's a cognitive fusion with the thoughts, then we are absolutely vulnerable. But insofar as, and here's a gradient, here's a gradient, insofar as you are truly settling your mind in its natural state, resting your awareness, open, loose, devoid of grasping like space, such that whatever thoughts come up, images, discursive thoughts, memories, fantasies, and so forth, whatever comes up, it's just like something arising in, in deep space, just arising, Orphaned, that is not no one possessing it, grasping onto it, identifying with it. It just arises, plays itself out, and then it just vanishes. It's like a rainbow, an ugly <laughs> rainbow, a beautiful rainbow, but still the rainbow is just an appearance arising in space. And so there's a gradient there. When we have no experience of settling the mind in its natural state at all, then I, I suspect it's true for many people. Whatever thought comes up, we simply identify with it immediate cognitive fusion. We immediately feel, I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that. And so a cognitive fusion, which means we're vulnerable, it's like we have no immune system at all. Anything that comes up, it's going to get us. Like no psychological immune system at all. As we develop this ability, so we see it's a simple practice, it's settling the mind. Just be, simply be present without distraction, without grasping. What could be simpler? And yet we all know how, how subtle it is. But I think already a number of you have found that's not a flat-out impossibility. It's not a complete impossibility. On occasion, we actually get there. We can actually observe a thought, an image, a memory arising. It arises. We might even be there when it's first born. Or we might be aware only after it's arisen, but then be aware of it, and it flows on a little bit. But here's a principle. To the extent that... We can be aware of the thoughts, the images, and so forth that arise in the space of the mind without grasping, to the extent that it's a gradient, then they cannot harm us. They cannot harm us. Any more than rainbows can harden the sky. And so, it's a way of becoming lucid with respect to your mind in the waking state. That's a really short way of viewing it. It's recognizing mental events as mental events, thoughts as thoughts, mental images as mental images, and those mental images have no more substance, no more power than images on a, in a, on a cinema screen or on an LCD screen, television. They have no power at all. Well, they're just flickering. They're just like that. And likewise, the thoughts that are arising, if we're not identifying with them, not grasping onto them, then it's like hearing the radio. just sounds on a radio. So where is the possible... How could a radio hurt? The only way a radio could hurt you is somebody throws at you. But the words can't really hurt you unless you grasp onto them. So there's a segue into it. They may be very detrimental, but if and only if there's a cognitive fusion, we grasp onto them. To the extent that we don't, they arise, they're ephemeral, they have no substance, no power, and then they, then 
It's kind of like they look around, oh, nobody wants me. And then they dissolve right back where they came from. So it is possible. This is, uh, for those of you who have taken my one-week course, or now you have the notes on the central computer there, from Ledap Lingba. This, and he has this, gives, gives this wonderful one-page synopsis, really quite complete, of this practice of settling the mind in its natural state. He says, when you become adept in this practice, you will have this non-conceptual sense, this non-conceptual awareness or knowledge that nothing can harm your, nothing that arises in the mind can harm you, whether or not thoughts have ceased. So it's really quite bold. It's a very bold statement, right? And so then we see, well, okay, it's possible to be present with thoughts and not have to be harmed by them. In other words, we don't need to silence all the thoughts, get them to all go away, slip into the substrate consciousness, before we can be free of harm from the thoughts. They can arise, but without grasping, then they don't harm us. Now let's take it a step further. When we're in the midst of a very vivid and utterly non-lucid dream, in other words, what's, what's arising around us and our presence in the dream seems to be so real, so, so vivid, so realistic that it never even occurs, us, occurs to us to even consider or ask the question, might this be a dream? We're not, even making, we're not even asking the question, dream and waking reality. The question doesn't come up. It's just, this is what's happening. Rather like right now, I presume. Over the last five minutes, have you seriously considered maybe I'm still home and, just, and I didn't get accepted to the age. You know? It was full. And I so wanted to go that I'm dreaming I'm there. You know, that prob- thought probably never came up. You're just, this is what's happening. So you didn't think, is this a dream or is this reality? It's just like, this is what's happening. And likewise, in a very, very vivid, non-lucid dream, we don't even ask the question. We just, this is what's happening. And of course, we respond as if this is as real as it gets. And in, the, in that case, not only, of course, can we experience motion, emotional suffering, because you can have as much emotional suffering in, as a dream, in a dream as you do in the waking state. There's no difference. Right? Be terrified, fear, fearful, anguish, and so forth. The whole range arises. But also, you can suffer physically in a dream. Somebody punches you right in the face, right in the nose, and breaks your nose, bleeding all over your face. That doesn't feel good in a dream. Somebody throws a javelin through you. You won't like it. Fall off a cliff, see what it feels like, you know. And so you can suffer physically, despite the fact that your that your body in the dream has not a single molecule in it. There's not a single nerve ending in your dream body because it's about as fluffy as a rainbow, you know, less less substantial than a cotton puff, because it's just an empty appearance arising out of the substrate consciousness. Right. Nevertheless, you can certainly physic- experience physical pain, physical pain. Right. And so, and then we slip, slip over into the question of, well, what about if you recognize the dream as a dream? Right? In other words, you're realizing a mental event as a mental event rather than taking it to be simply, this is what's happening, this is real. Once again, there's a gradient, just as with settling the mind as natural state. They are so, so strongly correlated. One is to become lucid with respect to your mind in the waking state. The other is to be lucid with respect to your mind while you're asleep specifically in the dreaming state. The more lucid you are, the more clearly, the more thoroughly you apprehend the nature of the dream events as dream events, the less vulnerable you are to any kind of suffering, including physical suffering. Including physical suffering. So if you have a very deep insight, very thorough insight, and a lot of that insight will come through experimentation within the dream. It's called a phase of dream yoga of emanation and transformation. 
where you get into the dream and you're like a potter and you just start shaping the dream as you wish. Multiplying things that are only one, taking many, reducing it to many things, reducing it to one. Small becomes big, big becomes small. You can change your own shape from a human shape to a dog to a frying pan. You can disappear. You can be simply a disembodied presence. All of this is very possible because there's nothing in the dream that inherently from its own side has any substance to it. It's all just the free play. Free play of appearances arising from the substrate. So the more thoroughly, the more deeply, the more clearly you apprehend, recognize the nature of dream reality, and that includes your own presence in the dream as well as everything and everyone around you, the less vulnerable you are to physical pain in the dream. And that's one of the let's say, a midterm exam when you're practicing dream yoga and, and really developing in it, that when you see danger and from a monster, from a 10-meter-long from a ten, ten python, crocodiles, cobras, whatever creeps you out, whatever is your worst nightmare, maybe it's a human being, a very malevolent human being, whatever it is, you probably will have your worst nightmare because when you're practicing dream yoga, it does tend to dredge the psyche and your, your worst nightmare is bound to come up. And then you get to live it. Right? So the final exam, or not the final exam, the midterm, because there's a lot more to go after this phase, is, I'll just give the example of a, um, or let's say a 20-foot crocodile. I think they exist, 20-foot, yeah? 20-foot, why not? A good one. They could definitely make a nice lunch of any one of us here. So if you imagine if, if being in a very lucid dream, and you're out there swimming in some lagoon up off the northwestern coast of Australia, and you're in a crocodile Dundee country, and you're swimming along, and then you see these two eyes come out, and this tail way, way behind it, and maybe a little happy glint in the eyes of this crocodile, like, oh boy. <laughs> you know, and it starts swimming towards you, and suddenly, being in the dream, you find that your, your, mo- your swimming is in very slow motion, and the crocodile is not so impeded. The crocodile is moving you like, th- like right through the water like a shark. And you're going, Wah. And you're seeing it come in. If you're very adept at dream yoga, at that point, you've got all kinds of options. You can fly up into the sky. You can just fly. Why not? You want to get away from it? Fly. You can clad yourself in, in, in you know, titanium, titanium armor. So if the, if the crocodile gets to you, it just dents its teeth. You can do that. Or you can imagine you're, you're, you're an Iron Man. You're made, of, you're made of titanium. Or you can just turn the crocodile into a cute little cocker spaniel. That's just going... You, know. you can do all of those things. But if you're really adept at dream yoga, then you should have gotten the message by now that that which is swimming towards you is simply an apparition. It's like a, it's like a mirage. It's like a reflection and mirror, like a rainbow. And there's not one molecule in the teeth of that crocodile. It is completely insubstantial. And your body swimming slowly through the lagoon, also, there's not a single molecule in it. It doesn't have internal organs. A dream body doesn't have internal organs unless you're a doctor and you think there are. And then, oh, yeah, I do have a liver. But it's just because you think so, right? And so when you really recognize that your body swimming through this illusory lagoon your body being illusory, the crocodile coming towards you being illusory, no substance anywhere, then you recognize, wait a minute, if one rainbow attacked another rainbow, exactly where would the injury occur? And so then you just relax. Instead of trying to swim away, you may as well just 
go onto the, onto the back and just kind of wait for the crocodile to get you. And maybe the crocodile will. And it opens its great big gaping jaws, comes right down in your midsection, bites you in two, right? Good strong crunch, two pieces coming apart. And when it's done that, then you may just turn to the crocodile and would you like seconds? You know, offer it, offer it a second course. Because you can reform your body and then swim over. Do you want to try that again? You know, it's all just the stuff that dreams are made of. And so really, it's not that you... I have some students who are very adept in dream yoga. It's not that you don't have any bodily feeling. You do. Somebody touches you on your shoulder, you feel it. If a crocodile bites you in half, you'll feel something separating, so forth. But insofar as you are lucid, that the pain, you might experience a little bit of fluffy pain on the surface. But it doesn't get to you. Because you really know the nature of reality is there. And so... You're not anesthetized. It's not to say that there's no pain at all, but it's experienced in a very different way because it's all taking place within 100% illusion, and you know it. So there's a gradient from physical, um, physical and emotional agony and anguish in a dream, when it's non-lucid, all the way to there, where there's nothing to run away from. Right? Because there's no need to. You ever transform anything. So there we go from a wandering thought that can be disempowered, by not grasping onto and identifying with it, to a dream, which is now just a full-blown thought, both of them coming out of the substrate, made out of the same stuff. And then we come here where this body is made of molecules, and it does have nerve ending, and there are internal organs. But the question here is, is there anything about this body, with all of its nerve endings and the pain and rise and so forth, is there anything about this body, or this whole matrix of psychosomatic events that we call the five aggregates, Five psychosomatic a- aggregates. Is there anything about them that is truly I or mine? Is there anything here, if we go even deeper, is there anything here that is inherently, absolutely real in and of itself? Or is this too, does this even waking experience have something of a dreamlike nature to it? And if so, what is that nature? And so the antidote, the antidote for this deepest dimension of suffering which is all bound up with these defiled, closely held, psychosomatic, or no, psychophysiological, psychophysiological aggregates, has to do with seeing into their nature, releasing the closely held quality, the identification with, and simply realizing, frankly, the emptiness of one's own body and mind, and thereby one, enter, one experiences one's own body-mind very similar to the body-mind that are experienced in a lucid dream. So you've not achieved a general anesthesia. It's not that you don't have any feelings in the body, which wouldn't be fun, much fun. It certainly does not mean that you've been emotionally deadened and can't experience any feelings. That would be definitely you know, a mental illness. But rather that the feelings arise, but they arise very much like thoughts when we attend to them without grasping. They do arise, we are present with them, but we don't get caught in their grip. And we don't get caught in their grip because we are not grasping onto them. So, if one can even imagine it, imagine being embodied with a body that is made of molecules and so forth and so on, and yet it is said of Arya Bodhisattva, a Bodhisattva who has achieved direct realization of emptiness, that such a being, you might recall, such a, such a being can give... Can, offer his limbs, chop off his limbs and give them away as easily as if he's giving away vegetables. 
And the Buddhist, the Buddhist advice is, don't start chopping off your limbs until you're an Arya Bodhisattva. You might need them. Right? And so that would imply, for the Arya Bodhisattva, c- coming out of realization of emptiness, and then coming into the waking state, a truly and profoundly dreamlike experience of waking reality. So if, the, if he cuts off his hand and gives it to someone, he takes out an eye and gives it to someone, and there are, there are cases of that in, in Buddhist history, that some, there's some feeling there, some pain, but the pain just arises in, in mid-space, in space, and then vanishes. But there's no, no identification with it. So, this third level of suffering is related to the third of the higher trainings, the training of wisdom. Among the three mental afflictions, the three root mental afflictions, it's related to delusion. And so the aspiration here really is a very deep one. It would, it would har- hardly occur to anyone who has not been trained in this worldview to even arouse the wish that sentient beings might be free of that suffering. Because most of us won't wish for something we, we believe is completely impossible. But the Buddhist tradition says, this is possible, and there we are. That's what the path is about. So you don't necessarily have to, especially now speaking, especially from the Mahayana and then the Dzogchen perspective, you don't need to bring all of samsara to a halt that is, total termination of samsara. You don't need to go there in order to experience total freedom from suffering. In the Theravada, the Pali Canon, frankly, you, you do. You do. Because right? there's still physical suffering. It's experienced in a very different way. But there's still physical suffering. To be, but to be free of suffering entirely, you have to be a, a dead arhat. You have to be an arhat and then totally get rid of your five skandhas finished, totally, gone to the transcendent, immutable, unconditioned state of nirvana. Whereas in the Mahayana, in Dzogchen, very explicitly, there is this theme, even just in general Mahayana, of the Buddha's, the Buddha's mind being, not, it's being dwelling in a non, non-abiding, non-abiding enlightenment. Non-abiding. And that is, the Buddha's mind is not engulfed in samsara, not a sentient being, not an ordinary sentient being, but the Buddhist mind is not immersed in nirvana either, such that disengaged, totally divorced from this phenomenal world. But it's a non-abiding, non-abiding enlightenment where the Buddha manifests in the world, but is not of it, is not a sentient being, is never out of touch with, constantly realizing nirvana, but not totally absorbed in it. So the two are then experienced simultaneously in an inconceivable fashion because they are experienced non-dually, and in Dzogchen, then we go even a step further, and that is not only are they non-dual, but from the Dzogchen perspective, one views the whole of reality, including the whole range of samsara and nirvana, from one perspective, and that is the perspective of rikpa, pristine awareness. And from the perspective of rikpa, there is a one taste, this was one of the questions that was raised, a one taste to the whole of samsara and nirvana, and that is, rikpa is equally present in the most miserable states of existence to the most sublime states of existence, and it is no more present in one than it is in another. And when, it, when one is dwelling in that, that dimension of consciousness, then there is, in fact, from one's own perspective, there is no preference. There is no preference for nirvana over samsara. There seems to be a one taste, just undifferentiated, one taste, no better, no worse. So in Dingo Kinsha Rinpoche, 
the, the late, really extraordinary Dzogchen master, the primary Dzogchen teacher or Lama of the Dalai Lama, he commented in a wonderful commentary that he wrote that I think he spoke on the seven-point mind training. He said, when one is a tenth-stage bodhisattva, a bodhisattva so far along the path, you're just about to become a Buddha. When you're right there on the cusp, just about to stop being a bodhisattva and become fully awakened. So when you're right there, like on the edge, just ready to step over into full awakening, he said, at that point, there is in fact, for that bodhisattva, no preference between samsara and nirvana. You're, st- you're no longer yearning for, for yourself. You're no longer yearning for nirvana. You've gotten so close that now there's no difference from your perspective. And then you slip into enlightenment. When you see one taste, then you achieve. So this level of compassion really can arise only if it's really imbued with a very deep level of wisdom. When we arouse compassion for those in blatant suffering, that really doesn't need any wisdom at all. It needs empathy. It doesn't need any wisdom. We don't need to have any special insight. Somebody's crying. They're moaning. They're showing that they're in pain, physical or mental. How? I remember, I remember when I was a kid. I'll end this quickly, but when I was a kid, I had, I, we had dogs, and I loved my we had collies. And I especially took care of them. And I remember we had a collie named Bonnie, and I ran an experiment with her. Very, very close. I was up when, I was up from the time she was a puppy. And I remember, at least maybe just one occasion, I kind of buried my head and pretended like I was crying. Like, like buried my head in my knees and pretended like I was crying. And Bonnie came over and she, the colleagues have these long noses and she stuck, her, she stuck her long nose under my arms so she could lift up my head and so she could lick my face. You know? So I think anybody who knows dogs, there's nothing terribly unusual. But she was trying to comfort, because I was her buddy, I was her friend. And I seemed to be, she could tell crying, even if it was fake, she couldn't tell it was fake, but she could tell crying was crying. And she tried to comfort me as a dog. Okay, that was compassion. She tried to get, get, get your head up there, if I could, you know? And so a dog can recognize blatant suffering and feel compassion. The level of dog intelligence, I don't know, but I assume it's not terribly sophisticated. Somewhat deeper insight, for the suffering of change. It's a psychological insight, but a very deep one. Then when you go to this level, this is existential. This is the deepest level. So let's try it on for size. Please find a comfortable position. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm.
and for a little while calm the obsessively discursive mind, releasing with every out-breath, gentling the mind into, sub- into submission. Then let's move into a more active mode, imaginative, engaging mode of meditation. And we can first of all, in the spirit of compassion, address a very central theme of Buddhism, often translated as renunciation. But better translated, I believe, as a spirit of emergence, the aspiration to emerge from suffering and the causes of suffering to genuine happiness liberation, to awakening. When this is focused upon ourselves, we call it renunciation or a spirit of emergence. When we extend this out to those around us, this same impulse manifests three-dimensionally, so to speak, as compassion, as the wish, the aspiration that we may all be free of suffering and its causes and find liberation. Let's begin once again with ourselves. And you may ask, have you ever been afflicted by your own mind? Have thoughts, images, memories, and so on? Have they ever tormented you? If the answer is the obvious yes, you may ask, how is that possible? 
They have no substance. How is it possible that thought, something so intangible, could harm us? And they consider that the key is grasping, that we closely hold onto them as I and mine. We conflate them with reality and thereby make ourselves vulnerable. And then, if you will, imagine freedom. Freedom with respect to your own mind in the waking state. What would it be like to so clearly apprehend the nature of mental events as mental events? Free of distraction, free of grasping. That you are no longer harmed by your own mind while awake. Imagine it. Imagine such freedom. each in-breath arouse the aspiration. May I be free of this vulnerability to suffering and its underlying cause of grasping, of reification, of grasping onto that which is not I or mine as being I or mine. And with each in-breath, imagine experiencing such spaciousness of awareness that thoughts and all other mental events come and go, but with no owner, just rising in space and dissolving back into space, with no one to harm and no harmer.
one of the practices of daytime dream yoga is to imagine being lucid in a dream, radiantly, clearly, discerningly lucid, in anticipation of actually dreaming and waking up within the dream. Imagine similarly being invulnerable to all suffering when you are asleep, all mental suffering. Freedom through insight, freedom through awareness, and the eradication of delusion. With each in-breath arouse a yearning. May I be free of all mental suffering during the waking state and while dreaming. Let yourself imagine being radiantly lucid in the dream such that nothing can harm you any more than anything can harm a reflection in a mirror or a mirage. Now bring your attention to the waking state, where we are vulnerable not only to mental suffering, but obviously to physical suffering as well. But why does it get to us? Why does the pain get us in its grip? And it is because we grasp onto it, identify with it, my body, my feelings,
Imagine being thoroughly present in the waking state, but free of all such grasping and reification, grasping onto things as if they exist from their own side by their own inherent nature. seven-point mind training, Atisha says, in between formal meditation sessions, act as an illusory being. Through apprehending the empty nature of all phenomena. Imagine freedom from even physical pain in the waking state. Freedom through insight. Not through dissociation. each in-breath arouse the yearning, may I be free of suffering and its causes. All suffering. each in-breath, imagine realizing such freedom here and now. Imagine becoming totally lucid or totally waking up in the so-called waking state. Now extend this field of compassion in all directions, from the inside out to the person in front of you, behind you, to the left and right. 
attending to the deepest impulse in every sentient being, and that is to be free of suffering. With each in-breath, arouse this yearning. May each of us indeed be free of suffering, but also be free of the underlying causes of suffering, the whole spectrum. With each in-breath, imagine the suffering and the causes of others drawn, being drawn into you like a dark cloud and simply vanishing, dissipating. With each in-breath, imagine those around you experiencing such freedom here and now. each in-breath expand this field out to everyone in this room and continue extending in all directions embracing humans and non-humans alike for this we share with all sentient beings the yearning to be free of suffering Imagine all those around you extending outwards and outwards into space, above and below and to all the sides. Imagine all those around you realizing the freedom that is their heart's desire.
Imagine freedom for all beings, each one having the potential to be totally free. Release all appearances and objects to the mind, all aspirations, and let your awareness rest in its own nature, quietly illuminating itself. In the classic Buddhist teachings, there are fairly detailed discussions of different modes of generosity, of giving. Zanzengi jimba, the giving of material goods. People are hungry, they want one thing more than anything else, something to eat if they're thirsty. They're cold, they don't have enough clothing, shelter, medical care. And so this mode of Generosity is of enormous importance. Sometimes it's the most important thing that can be given. Isn't it? I think so. Generosity of giving protection for those who are endangered. Giving affection for those who are lonely, who feel unloved, unloved, having no friends, companions. But it is said that the greatest gift one can give is the gift of dharma. If one can not only address blatant suffering, but make a gift to another person that protects them from, frees them from, the suffering of change, by showing them how to extricate themselves from the tentacles of grasping and craving and attachment, then they're on their own. In fact, they have the freedom on their own. Even if they travel somebody far, far away, they still have that freedom, because now they have the freedom from within, let alone the gift of giving dharma that can actually go right to the very root, the tap root of suffering altogether, and eradicate the underlying delusion, so that suffering is cut.
from its source. So, great gift of Dhamma. That's why I'm not in retreat. I'd actually much rather be in retreat if I think just about myself. Big longing, just not do anything besides meditate. But I feel if I can help a few people, maybe it's worthwhile. But it's kind of a joke too. I feel embarrassed. Because when I look at my own mind, I say, you're trying to liberate other people? Give me a break. You know, why don't you liberate yourself first? What are you, a joker? Pulling tricks on people. So, that's why I continue practicing myself, because I am quite vividly aware that I'm a... To say I'm an unfinished product, it may be too exaggeration. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a pre-product. I'm not only not finished, not even... I'm a pre-product. So this is why I really... One of, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I love coming here is because when I'm leading eight-week retreats, I get to meditate nine hours a day. I established that next year, last year. That's how much I can do on a regular basis and take care of everything else out in the world. Because I get 20, 30 emails every day, most of which need responses. And I'm publishing four books this year and setting up itinerary for next year and so on. I won't bore you with all the details. But I can do everything for outside and I can meditate nine hours a day. And I think pretty well, though it's needed here. Uh, but that pretty much fills the whole day. And so I have received a couple of uh, requests to give extra interviews. And as much as I would like to, unless it's an emergency, I know my limitations. But I really, there are things I have to do outside of the retreat. I, just, I have no choice. I've made commitments, right? have to do it. Uh, and for me to offer you my best during these eight weeks, I know that I really need to be spending a lot of time. If I were so finished, I wouldn't have to meditate at all. I'd just say, come in, I'm enlightened. Just come, anybody, come on. I'll just give, give you all my wisdom. But I don't have that. I keep on needing to go back to the source myself. So... If there's an emergency, then I really am available 24-7. But apart from that, I know that I can meet six people a day, six days a week, and not get tapped out. Be happy to see see each of you when you knock on my door. I never feel, oh, no, another one. Not when it's just six. But if it starts to get seven or eight, I might... If you see me looking out, and you come to the door and go, then you know I've stepped over my limits, Right? So I've asked two friends who have a good deal of experience in meditation if they can maybe pitch in a little bit, Dharma friends. So an emergency at 2 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, you can call me. But otherwise, what I'd really ask is, in terms of my being able to offer to you, if you have something personal, try to write it down. And if it's personal, fine, just leave it anonymous. No one will know, and I will not give it away, especially if you don't put your name on the paper. Uh, And I'll try to address it. But the advantage there is that everybody can hear the answer, and that might be relevant to someone else. Okay? So, but again, if it's an emergency, I really am, 24-7, like a doctor. I'm, I am on call. But, as the old, what the old fairy tale, don't call wolf, don't cry wolf, <laughs> if there's no wolf. But do call on me if you need. So, that's that for that. There were, there were, oh, there was one lingering one. So, uh, but first, let's, I have a few questions here. But um, I think the strategy from yesterday is probably a good one. Let's start with, on the floor, live people talking to another live person. And we'll start with Lizzie. And you just happen to have the mic right there. So I have two questions. Um, And the first one is on behalf of Basa. Basa, yes. Yes. By the way, he's a Mongolian monk, not a Tibetan monk. From from, uh, outer Mongolia. Yes. He asked me to ask this. So I believe he asked you this question before. Um... So the question is, while watching the breath, where is the mind? 
Is it with the feeling of the breath or is it watching as an observer the breath happening? So where should he be placing his mind with the sensation and really like that cognitive fusion you spoke about? Yes, right. Or simply observing that the breath is happening? Yeah, it is, it is, um, karasa, ukirekshila mik, la mik, dao magiku misaka mik. It is directing your attention to the sensations of the breath. So it's not just experiencing them, but it is focusing on them. Right? Now, as the mind quiets, as conceptual mind, thoughts, as they disappear, then the sense of separation between I'm the observer and there's the breath may start to evaporate, yedogre, vanish. But we are attending to it single-pointedly. So it's not just I'm breathing, but it is attending to with a direction, focusing on. So in the full body, or here at the rise and fall of the abdomen, or when we go the longer route, so for the long distance, the sensations here. So where is the mind? Well, that's a good question. Right? But wherever the mind is, the mind is being directed to the sensations. Is that clear? Okay. And you had another one? Yeah. This is from me. Yeah. Um, so while we're doing the meditation on compassion... I'm finding that my experience of this aspiration feels so mental. Yes. Like, I don't sure. know if anything's really happening, kind yeah. of, you know, and it's not necessarily stirring a lot of emotion. I understand it's not an emotion, yeah. but it's an aspiration. Yeah. So I guess my question is, what is the power of thought mm-hmm. um, in terms of this aspiration? You know, these, these thoughts, do they actually have an effect? Um, That's a very good question, and I think I understand it. Okay. Yeah. So the first, the first response is that when one is first venturing into this discursive, I, I don't call it meditation on compassion. I try to use my, choose words very carefully. If I'm meditating on compassion, then compassion is the object that I'm meditating on. Hello, compassion, how are you? you know? So it's not a meditation on compassion or meditation on loving kindness. It is meditative cultivation of compassion. And then here's a really good question, and it's not nitpicking or just you know playing with words. And so I'll ask you, if you give the wrong answer, it doesn't matter. But when you are cult- meditatively cultivating compassion, what is the object of your attention? So it goes right back to Basa's question. What are you attending to when you're meditatively cultivating compassion? I'll give you the wrong answer, compassion. But what is the right answer? And if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter. What do you think? Well, the aspiration. No. You're not focusing on the aspiration. You're not. Fo- I, I'm saying, what are you directing your attention to when you are meditatively cultivating compassion? The objects of compassion. What is that? Um, I'm That's right. Yeah. So you're not meditating on compassion. You're not meditating on the aspiration. You're attending to. You're attending to sentient beings. Now you can start with this one here, this one here, yourself. And in a way, you know, we're already into that mode already. That is, when we're acting with self-judgment and self-criticism and why don't you do better, you didn't do as well as I want, I wish you would meditate more, blah, 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 you know? It's like two people in there and one is taking the other as an object. Well, we're already doing that. So if we're in that mode already, then why, why not start being gentle and nice to ourselves and wishing that we may actually be free of suffering and not just beating ourselves over the head for not living up to our expectations. So sentient beings. Now, generally, compassion is for other sentient beings. 
but because of the issues of modernity, then you know we include self. So when it first starts out, though, as with you know any kind of meditation, vajrasattva meditation, mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, very few people start out in a brand new meditation, and on the first day come to the conclusion, wow, I'm so good at this. I haven't heard anybody say that, frankly. Some people say it's going pretty well, but man, I tried it and I was an expert on the first try. 34, 35 years of, te- 35 years of teaching now, nobody's ever said that to me. You know, It comes slowly, whatever it is, whether it's a simple thing like mindfulness of breathing or meditative cultivation of compassion. It comes slowly. And it comes by way of, dis- by way of discursive thought, but now in the following way. And that is, I'm right now thinking of my mother. She's still alive. Thinking of my mother. She lives in California, long way away. And, I, and so if you ask me right now, what am I directing my attention to? What's the object? My mother, the one who gave birth to me. She's an elderly woman. Now. And how am I doing that? Because I'm not clairvoyant. I can't just you know, see her where she is. How, am I, how can I attend to my mother when she's not here? I can attend to you, you're here. How can I attend to my mother when she's not here? How is that possible? by way of my memory, by way of images, by way of thought, by my awareness that she's still alive, by way of concept, by way of images and thoughts, they're my vehicle to almost like take my mind like a slingshot or like a sling and throw my mind to my mother. Right? And I am attending to her. Right? And so by attending to, and this wonderful word, tending to, watching over, caring for, looking after, all built into tend to, which is attend. By tending to, I think probably not for all of us perhaps, but for many of us, just by bringing our own mothers, and bear in mind, of course, there's a lot of variation in mother-child relationships. That's reality. But in many cases, as in my case, I have a very loving mother, a very benevolent relationship, quite uniformly, that just by attending to my mother, just thinking about her, and how she's doing, and where is she living now, what are her challenges, what makes her happy? What makes it difficult? What, what are the difficulties in her life? Is she afraid of anything? Just attending to that, bringing it to mind, attending to that. I think I'm, there's nothing special about me. Compassion arises. She's quite old now, and she's experiencing real old age. right? And so simply by attending, by way of thoughts, and then if I even nudge it a little bit, and I start, as I'm attending to her, I think, may you be free. I know one thing that really can bring you sadness. May you be free of that. May you be free. There's no need for that to occur. Might you be free. Or even if it occurs, might you have such inner resilience, such inner calm, that it's just a noise on the outside and it doesn't get to you. It doesn't harm you. you know? And so just by attending to that, two ways of being free of suffering. One is that the stimulus goes away. The other is your mind is transformed. So even if the stimulus is there, you're not harmed. Right? So the thoughts are there, but they are there to guide our attention to actual sentient beings. Right? So when it starts, you're right, exactly right, and I think your experience is very representative. But it's mostly mental. It feels like a cognitive exercise. Right? And it is. At the same time, when we think about ourselves, and this is why it's good to start there, when we think about ourselves, if there's something, you know, we go right back to blatant suffering, and if there's anything that gives you blatant suffering in your life right now, it could be something wrong with the body, it could be something in your social setting, just you, you, anybody. But if there's something that kind of makes life difficult, 
and, you, and you've attended to it, you're aware of it, you maybe even ruminate on it sometimes, then as you're attending to that, then to arouse the desire, the yearning, the aspiration, might I be free? Either free of this person, this situation, whatever's ailing me, whatever troubles me, either might they go away, you know, just give me a break, or might I develop such spaciousness, such freedom in my mind, that even if they come, they can't harm. You know? That's mental, but it, it really is an aspiration. It's genuine. You know? And by arousing it, making it explicit, it gives a bit more energy. And then we extend it to loved ones, other people we naturally care about. Or if we hear by way of the media or in our personal lives of people who are really suffering, really having a hard time, you know, we witness it. Then by attending to them, then the aspiration comes. So it's a mistake to think that the degree, the magnitude, the depth of compassion you're feeling is directly correlated with the amount of emotion you're feeling at that time. It's not directly correlated. People have different temperaments. That just I mean, in terms of Dharma, there are some people who just naturally slip into very devotional modes of Dharma. They love the ritual, the chanting, the worship, the prayers, the imagery, and so forth and so on. Some people just connect with that immediately. They have no problem with it. And others, they look at that and say, you know, that's not for me. Give me shamatha. Give me good old macho shamatha, you know? Give me something that speaks to my intelligence. Give me some majamaka philosophy. Give me the Four Noble Truths. Give me something I can wrap my mind around that I can really engage with that helps me by increasing my understanding. So people differ. Some people, they, their dharma is primarily through action. They don't want to spend so much time meditating. They feel, I'm really practicing dharma when I'm engaged. I'm really doing something in the world that matters. And that's where my dharma lies. So, so sue me, you know. That's where I am. And so <clears throat> when it comes to compassion, some people as cultivating, there may be from the very beginning a very strong emotional component to it. That's fine, but that's temperament. That doesn't necessarily mean they're more compassionate than other people. It's temperament. It means that they're more emotionally inclined. So when they arouse the compassion, a lot of emotion comes with it. But others, the compassion, the actual aspiration may be very genuine, very sincere, but not a whole lot of emotion with it. right? But then how do we know? How do we know is, well, the aspiration is real such that when an opportunity arises to actually alleviate the suffering of it, they're right there. They're in action. They're writing a check. They're going out. They're doing something. They're engaged because they already desired it. And now the opportunity arises. Oh, I can't help. Boom, they're right there. Whereas you can imagine another person meditating with cultivating compassion and lots of tears and oh, you know, so much emotion coming up. And then when they're off the cushion and see somebody suffering, they just have more tears. But exactly what does that help? You know, So you're crying for somebody. So what? I mean, does that really help anything at all? Just a lot of emotion. So emotion doesn't necessarily have direction to it. I just feel so sad for the world. Oh, I'm so sad for the world. Well, the world might just say, get over it. You know, you're not helping us. You're just sitting there being one more sad person. We have a lot of sad people. You're just one more. You know? So something like that. As we go deeper and deeper into it, the, all of the discursiveness, this is where I'll wrap it up, the discursiveness is like fingers pointing to the moon. The thoughts, the concepts, the images, the breathing, and we'll do visualization. Next time we go through the circle, we'll do the visualization of Donglin. But all of those are fingers pointing to the moon. To do what? That the heartfelt aspiration is there. So that really one sincerely longs that others, like oneself, may be free of suffering and its causes. And it becomes a high priority. Yeah? Okay? So it comes slowly. Go ahead. So just to clarify, um, the intention of the practice isn't 
the intention of the practice is to empower the action. Not not that there's some power in the thoughts or the aspirations themselves. There is power in the aspiration itself. Yeah, I've known yogis uh, in... Oh, what's his name? It's, uh, I can't remember his name right now. Old yogi, old yogi. Spent like 35 years in solitude. He just embodied compassion. I, we visited him with a group of neuroscientists back in 1992. These neuroscientists, one was kind of a Buddhist, the other ones were absolutely not, you know. He blew them all away. He just, they just wanted to be with him. There was such warmth, such kindness. They just wanted to see his face. You know, these are, these are hardball, real egghead, you know. I mean, there's nothing bad about them, but they're really strong scientists. They're neuroscientists. It's all about the brain, you know. But this man just melted them. They just loved being with him. But was he, what was he doing in the world? Not a whole lot in that particular lifetime. That was a lifetime where he was, for most of his lifetime, he just, he just put his finger in the socket, in the electrical socket and got really, really charged, you know? Genlam Rinpoche was very similar. He spent like 30, 35 years in solitude, just charging, charging, charging. This makes absolutely good sense in a Buddhist worldview, and really not much sense at all if you're a materialist and think that death is annihilation. You say, wow, that was a waste of time. You developed some really happy feelings and you died. Big deal, you know? But from a Buddhist perspective, Genlam Rinpoche, when I asked him, where would you love to be reborn? We lived together for a whole year. You know, lead, he, he was leading, I was helping, assisting, leading a one-year retreat. And he, and he answered very simply, wherever I can be of greatest benefit. So no references, pure land, human, blah, blah, blah. He said, open. So his motivation was just there. It was just ready to go anywhere, right? So the practice is designed to empower the aspiration. Empower the aspiration. And by attending to others, and attending to others more than oneself, when I first translated Verse Holiness, the first time he taught Dharma in the West, as far as I know, in 1979, in Switzerland, he said, imagine there's a thousand people on one, on one side of an aisle and one person on the other side of the aisle. Which one's well-being, between the aisle on the left and the right, which one's well-being is more important? Well, that's kind of easy. Even if you're the one, even if you're the one on the other side of the aisle? <laughs> yeah, that's the whole idea. That all sentient beings well-being is in fact infinitely more important than one and one person's well-being is infinitely important. I mean, Buddhists will bend over backwards to enlighten a single individual, let alone all sentient beings. So it's there to empower, to deeply root the aspiration, to transform, to shift the orientation, the prioritization of one's own well-being over others, to shift that around. It is there so that the compassion is evenly extends out. So it's no, there's no rough, no bumpiness, bumpiness for human beings, not 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 human beings. All the bumpiness. I don't need to elaborate. That it's smooth, that it's even, that it embraces all. It embraces Nazis. It embraces torturers. It embraces alligators. It embraces everybody equally, equally. That's why one cultivates it, and that's cultivating immeasurable compassion. And then to go beyond that to cultivating Mahakaruna, great compassion is from the depth of one being. I, I really, it's realistic only from the dimension of Rikpa, from the ultimate depth of your being, from Buddha nature, from that perspective, from that perspective, taking responsibility that I shall alleviate the suffering of the whole world. That's crazy from the pers- perspective of coarse mind. It's crazy from the perspective of substrate consciousness. It's totally unrealistic. It's ridiculous. But from the perspective of Buddha nature, that's actually a realistic aspiration. And that's Mahagurana. 
And that is the direct catalyst leading us to bodhicitta. Because if you really have that aspiration, there's only one way to realize it. Only one way. And that's to become a Buddha. Period. So that's why one cultivates it. From measurable to great to bodhicitta and to becoming a bodhisattva. And then make it irreversible. Okay? Good. Let's read one. You see, I'm not much good at short answers, Sati. I never have been, at least not for a long time. Ever since I've been teaching Dharma, I haven't been good at short Here we go. Okay, here's one, one taste. I think for the time being, that was it. The one taste, and that is from the perspective of, of Rigpa, from the perspective of pristine awareness. There is simply no preference for even nirvana over samsara. The one taste of joy and sorrow, the one taste of felicity and adversity. So a few of you were here for the weekend before. This is exactly a preparation for Dzogchen, to transform all of the felicity, all of adversity into the path. It is a preparation for actually seeing the one taste of felicity and adversity the one taste of samsara and nirvana, that from that perspective, it's even. Taknyam, it's called. Taknyam. Ta, pure, even. Nyam means even. Homogeneously, evenly, pure. From your perspective of rikpa, the deepest hell realms in the Buddhist worldview up to the pure lands, they're all from the perspective of rikpa, evenly pure. Pure and equal. That's that. So it takes a bit more than just kind of sitting there with open presence. It's a nice start, but that's not Dzogchen. How can I know that I'm doing something with my practice? That I'm doing something with my practice? There's a sign or something like that that tells us we are doing some progress? Okay. I wouldn't wait for a sign. Don't wait for a sign. There are many practices for which the, the benefits are not so transparent and they be, may be long in coming long and coming. A number of you have taken tantric empowerments. You have commitments for doing certain sadhanas each day. right? So, how long do you need to wait if you're doing some complex sadhana with detailed visualizations and mantras and so forth before you really see the very tangible, practical benefit of that? It's not so clear. Because sometimes, not uncommon, some of the great lamas, so this is, I'm suggesting this is not some kind of mispractice or, or degeneration of dharma, sometimes lamas will give an empowerments really and what they have in mind is I'm giving you I'm, I'm giving you these empowerments as the long term investment that is future lifetimes you may or may not get any tangible benefits like whoa I'm, I'm much more compassionate oh I much, have much less angry, anger oh I'm much more ethical you may not see any of the above but they may give the empowerments feeling this is just one life this is like a finger snap gone so quickly and I'm looking way down the road. What are the seeds that I can plant in your mind stream that will keep you connected and open up the path deeper and deeper and deeper from lifetime to lifetime? So for those, it's not so clear you know, what benefits you're really going to see in this lifetime. If you become a total yogi, if you become a Vajrayana yogini, then indeed you may realize the full fruits of stage regeneration. Fantastic. Great. And you will know what they are. They're massive. But to get to those without shamatha, without bodhicitta, and without realization of emptiness, is completely a fool's errand. It never happens. It never happens. You'll have only... His Holiness told me that. He taught me a detailed visualization practice. And he said, if you do this without realization of emptiness, you may as well just be imagining yourself as a cartoon. It's just an imagination. So what's the big deal? You know? So you imagine yourself as a big bull. 
Imagine yourself as a naked red lady. What, you got a sunburn? You know. So just doing visualizations. Who knows? But if you have the realization, then terrific. Now, coming to shamatha, unlike that, shamatha, you don't need to wait months. You don't need to wait months. You might want to wait a couple of weeks. But you don't need to wait make once. Uh, uh, that is, wait for a long time, wondering, is it working, is it working? Come back to it. This is a very transparent practice or array of practices. All the three methods that I'm teaching, you know what they are. They're transparent. They're working or not, but you are the best one to know. I'm here to help you out, but you are the one to know whether it's beneficial. And that is, as you're engaging in these practices for some hours each day, are you experiencing a greater sense of ease, an untying of knots, of constriction? Are you finding greater looseness, greater sense of presence, ease and comfort in your body and mind? If you're not, you're not doing the practice correctly. Or maybe it's not the right practice for you. Or maybe I'm not the appropriate teacher. But the practice isn't working. If you're not feeling a greater sense of ease, it's not working. Shamatha is tranquility, serenity, peace. If that's not happening, it's not working. So on the basis of that, as you feel more at ease in the body, then you know what I'm going to say. Stability. The mind is more composed. You can maintain greater coherent continuity of attention upon your chosen object. Right? As, as the days and then some weeks go by, Finally, you can sustain your attention for 10 seconds at a time, 20 seconds, a minute, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And it's not just, wow, I could muscle my way through it, but finally you're getting into that flow that is really quite sweet. There's a serenity. There's something like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do it more. And not, wow, was that hard? Thank goodness that's over. I hope I can do as well as the next session. That's the air traffic controller that's getting through the hours. It's tough work. And I'm, I, I imagine they're always really happy and say, ah, oh, five o'clock, Whew, where's the beer? You know, where's the music? Anything to get, oh, where? I don't have to do that anymore for a while. Thank goodness it pays good. You know? And so there's the second one. Is your mind becoming more composed? Is stability enhanced? If it's not, then shamatha may be working a little bit, but not much. And thirdly, vividness. The greater clarity, the qualitative clarity, the temporal vividness. Is your mind becoming more luminous, clear, acute, high resolution? If it is, then you're getting the icing on the cake. Because that's where shamatha really, the cutting edge, is way up there. So those three qualities. So don't wait for anything. But this is why I said rather passionately yesterday that in the practice of shamatha, I really, and I, I won't say it all over again except ex- extremely briefly, it is a practice of, here's a phrase I love, and it's right from the Tibetan, rikpa rangsar zimba. Rikpa rangsar zimba. Letting your awareness hold its own place, hold its own ground. Letting your awareness hold its own ground. Now that's explicitly in awareness of awareness, where you're just resting in awareness, knowing awareness, without going anywhere else, without being captivated, abducted, carried away by anything, just awareness of awareness. But it's also for the other practices. And that is you're not being abducted. Awareness holding its own ground. You are present. You're present. You're not caught up. You're not grasping. You're not distracted. You're not dull. Awareness, which by nature is luminous and cognizant, is holding its own ground. To do that for one second is one second of something meaningful. You don't have to worry about the next second. That second was good. That second was sane. It's relaxed, it's composed, and it's clear. And make a habit of that. Rather than the opposite, we know how to the op- we know how to habituate to being uptight, stressed out, and so forth, and agitated and turbulent, and we know how to be dull. We're really good at that, and so here is making a habit 
of being loose, relaxed, still and clear, awareness holding its own ground, whether you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind in its natural state, not being abducted by your own mind, gaining lucidity with respect to your own mind, and then awareness of awareness. So every moment you're doing that is meaningful, and all the more meaningful if you really bring a very meaningful motivation to it. So there's no waiting. No waiting at all. You are achieving shamatha every moment you're there. And take satisfaction in that. As it came up in the, in the, uh, the text from last weekend, it's not enough to do the practice correctly. You need to know you're doing it correctly. And knowing you're doing it correctly gives satisfaction. Giving satisfaction, then you're going to be inspired to do it more. There we are. Okay? Let's see if there's another quick one. I think there is. Regarding settling the mind in its natural state, I write in the book Genuine Happiness, for this practice it is important to leave your, leave your eyes open with your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you. Boy, deja vu all over again. Right? Why? What about dry eyes? In what practices must the eyes be kept open? What about dry eyes? I've got one word. Blink. <laughs> blink as often as you like. You, just, you can blink every second for all I care. Just blink away. Just, you know? Blink as much as you like. Eye drops can be good. So don't let your eyes become dry. Eye drops, blink, meditate in the shower, do whatever you need. (laughs) Okay. And so in what practices, among the practices we're doing, uh, in which practices are there explicit references to keeping the eyes open? Not mindfulness of breathing, that's open. Different teachings, different teachers. But for settling the mind, the teachings are uniform. Let your eyes be at least partially open for awareness of awareness. Keep the eyes open. And this is taught by great teachers, Padmasambhava, Lerapalingba. The list goes on and on and on. Why do it? Number one, it takes, for many people, if you've not done it before, then it's something new, therefore a bit difficult. You need to develop a habit. Get accustomed to it. But why do it? Number one, if you have control over your environment, which you do 22 hours a day, that is, all all, all the hours that you're not here, because here, here I ask you to come and you can't control the people in front of you. But all the other time when you're in your room, you're in, you're in charge of your environment. So let the, let the lighting be very soft. Let there be nothing moving in your field of vision. Let it be rather boring. And then, having the eyes open, a lot of people find, I'll just give two reasons and very briefly, a lot of people find that by having the eyes open, it helps to keep you grounded in the present moment. It tends to make you less vulnerable to, be carrying, to being carried away by thoughts. A lot of people find that to be the case. The second one is having the eyes open already implies um, a greater spaciousness to the space of the mind than if you close your eyes, which reinforces the notion the space of the mind is inside my head. Which is, I would just say that's wrong. (laughs) Just wrong, right? And so having that eyes open, a greater spaciousness, so those are the two reasons. Having said that, one very nifty way to fall asleep, if you, uh, if you find it easy to fall asleep, is fall asleep while settling your mind in its natural state. No one's expecting you to fall asleep with your eyes open, unless you're a horse. I think they do that. But as human beings, we generally close our eyes. So the Dalai Lama was asked about this, and that is, if you're practicing such a practice as this, where the eyes are supposed to be open, but after some time, they just gradually close. He said, oh, don't worry about it. And especially if you're lying in bed, falling asleep, and the eyes close as you settle your mind in this natural state, no problem. Okay? But getting into the swing of it, of being able to meditate with your eyes open, can be a good idea. Because otherwise, you may have, just by 
by sheer association, you may naturally, quite naturally, develop this strong habituation, almost like a Pavlovian response, that you can only meditate when your eyes are closed. Well, that's kind of a shame. That means when you're walking down the street, you can't meditate. Unless you're walking down with your eyes closed, and that's generally not a good idea. And so meditating with your eyes open when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're doing whatever, to develop the ability to meditate with your eyes open too. That's a good idea. So that's that. This one lingers. I wonder if I can do it quickly. (laughs) Lots of luck. How do the Vajjana factors arise? In linear sequence or more organically as one uh, progress in practice? That's correct. They do not arise linearly, not one by one. So the sequence is coarse investigation, subtle investigation. And then I think the next one is, I can't remember the order right now. I think it's uh, Pitti, bliss. The next one's well-being. And the final one is single-pointedness. There's no sequence there. They arise together. They arise together. Okay? So, so far that was so far so good. When do they reach culmination? I presume not before stage eight, and then it, it, is it with stage eight, nine, or access to the first jhana? The five, the five jhana factors, they're called factors of jhana, they, you, they arise, they all arise richly when you achieve access to the first jhana, which is the achievement of shamatha. They're all there. And all of the five obscurations have gone dormant. When you achieve shamatha, access to the first jhana. Samdin, dambu, nyato. Dipanga, pa balanyo do yore. And as samdin, yelatna, yore. Chatsang, yore. All the five jhana factors are, are there. But now, here's the difference. Technical, technical business. In moving from the access to the first jhana to the actual state of the first jhana. Samdin, dambu, muji. So, from access to the full achievement of jhana, you are equally free of the five obscurations in both. But the five jhana factors are more stable, more robust, they are stronger if you fully achieve the first jhana. And so your single-pointedness is stronger, which accounts for the fact that if you achieve just access to the first jhana, you, you should be able to meditate minimum like four hours in a stretch, effortlessly, with just with, without even any subtle excitation or laxity. Your sense is completely imploded, single-pointedly, blissfully focused on the object. If you achieve the full stage, full first jhana, the actual state of the first jhana, you, you bump that up from four hours to 24 hours. 24 hours effortless. Like a strong man who can remain standing for 24 hours at a stretch. This is the classic teachings. There's a lot of watered-down teachings going around. A lot, frankly, I think it's like counterfeit money. I really do. I think it's like counterfeit money. Uh, people have just not studied enough. I think they're probably well-intentioned. But what they do is they start defining the jhanas and they start defining stream entry and they start defining rikpa and realization of emptiness based upon their own experience. Oh, I had such and such and such experience. That's what realization of empty is. And then emptiness becomes their experience. And they haven't really studied sufficiently. So we find this enormous erosion. And so the words hardly mean anything anymore. So some people teaching that you can achieve a couple of jhanas on a weekend. Why? Because they achieve something that they call jhana and they got in a weekend and they say, you can too. That's fine, but that's their little jhana in their little counterfeit state where, where their words are actually worth something. But to, com- complete that, to, to confuse that with Buddhism is really sad because then you never know what, real, what the real McCoy is, what the genuine article is. So this is why whenever I'm teaching, especially the week-long retreats and so forth, I always show my sources. So, you know, this is not my opinion. I'm, I'm going to the most sterling sources I can possibly find. That's the gold standard. For the Theravada tradition, it's the Pali Canon, 
And then after that, the Vimuti Maga, the Visuddhi Maga, the most definitive commentaries in the whole tradition. So I rely on those. If it's Dzogchen, I'm relying on, on Padmasambhava and other equally accomplished beings like Dujum Lingba, Lerap Lingba, Kama Chakme. Everybody knows the tradition. They are absolutely sterling. So I rely on those. For the Galupa tradition, I don't go much beyond Tsongkhaba and Penjam Dosan Chuki Gansen. So there we are. So that's the ac- actual state of the first jhana. We're over now, but maybe I can finish quickly. Also, how our course examination, precise investigation related to shamatha, they sound much more like Vipassana terms. My hunch is that they are to do with sampajanya and the mental factor of discernment. Um, it's a good point. <clears throat> it's a good point why you're simply practicing shamatha. It's called jokom in Tibetan, simply placement, placement meditation, where you're simply placing your object on the object, and by and large, you're not investigating it, reflecting upon it, analyzing it, and so forth. True. That's true. That analysis, investigation, these are characteristic of vipassana. They are not characteristic of shamatha. But the point here is that these are innate qualities of the subtle mind. And so when your, when your coarse mind settles in this luminous quality, this blissful quality, this non-conceptual quality, then, and you've achieved access to the first jhana, then these innate faculties that you have of coarse investigation, Course, course investigation, subtle analysis, they're brushed off. They're brushed off. All the noise, the noise, the junk has been removed. The obscurations have been removed. So that radiant luminosity, which is an intelligent luminosity of your substrate consciousness, it's there. So even though it's unlike getting an education, like learning mathematics or studying Latin, where you're developing the ability by really using it a lot, right? You're developing your critical ability, solving math problems, working through Latin grammar and so forth. You get that ability of investigation analysis by using it. Well, that's also true in Vipassana. Use it and it gets sharper. But this is more an unveiling of a faculty. Unveiling of the faculty. So you're not analyzing and investigating in order to bring forth these jhana factors. You're stabilizing the mind so those jhana jhana factors are revealed. Any more than you're trying to, to cultivate bliss. You're not trying to cultivate bliss. You're not trying to... I mean, how do you cultivate bliss? Think happy thoughts? That's not shamatha. So you're not cultivating bliss also. You're not cultivating a sense of well-being. They just come up. You are cultivating single-pointed attention. So out of the five jhana factors, only one are you really cultivating. And the other ones are all coming along for the ride. They're emerging out of the mind that is coming to a state of equilibrium. Okay, That's that. So I actually got that one done too. Jolly good. We're only a little bit after six. So now tomorrow is a time, of course, it's absolutely part of the retreat. It's a time that is entirely free, unstructured. So I'd invite you just to enjoy the quiet. You won't have me disturbing your mind for a whole 24 hours. Which be, I hope you can enjoy as much as I do. And uh, I think that's it for now. Yep, I think so. Hola, so? So I'll see you around. I'll see you around. <laughs>